Welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. I'm your host, Sarah Bueno. I'm a psychotherapist, teacher, consultant, and most importantly, a wounded healer living and working in Chicago, Illinois. And I'm your host, Anne Remy. I'm a counseling psychotherapist, yoga teacher, and trauma specialist living in Brighton, UK. On this show, we interview folks in a variety of healing professions, and we discuss the intersectional journey of healing self while caring for others. But we're not just focused on individual healing, but also healing on the collective level, from white supremacy, late-stage capitalism, and the patriarchy. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Sarah. What's up? Just living my darkest life at 4.30 p.m. I know, right? Oh, so it's you're basically like the same place in the time zone, so it's dark super early. Yes. Tis, tis very dark. <laughs> That's what I say about that. Mm-hmm. Just getting all that vitamin D from a supplement now. <laughs> yes. Well, Praise um, gibbers craps for supplements. Yeah. Before we get started... Speaking of supplements, there we go. That's a better segue. <laughs> Speaking of supplements. We don't have any. <laughs> did you know you can supplement oh, the... Oh, there she did it. Yeah. Did you know you can supplement the money that Sarah spends producing this podcast <laughs> by buying merch from us? Yay! I'm oh, so good That's very good. Yeah, thank you. Tinyurl.com slash CWH merch to purchase cute t-shirts and all kinds of fun stuff. You can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, which helps. And you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash convos with a wounded healer. And coming in January, Sarah and I are going to be actually putting extra exclusive fun content on Patreon. That's right. That makes it even more worth it to support us. That's right. That's right. Sarah, what did you think about this episode with Nadia? Well, let's first talk about British accents because... Okay. I yes. <laughs> I love them so much. And I love just, you know, I mean, you know, being an actor, like there are plenty of times in, you know, in high school and whatever that you have to like put on other accents. And of course, it never occurred to me that there's more than one British accent. And her accent, where where is she from? Ooh, I actually don't know if I asked her that. Well, because you have lived in the UK for a significant period yeah. of time. Can you tell where people are from based on their accent? Because it's I've been watching Naked Attraction. Have you heard of this show? Oh, I know. It's terrible. Why? It's terrible. It's the worst I need of the worst. Because I've run out of TV. And because of the writer's strike. Can I, can I please recommend better British reality television to you? I mean, I just wanted to see a couple dicks. I'm not going to keep watching it. Okay. Don't worry. Okay. I'm not going to judge you. I'm right. not going to judge you for that. But if I may recommend... I don't know if you can access it in the United States, but it's called First Dates, and it's very okay. wholesome. And they they actually try to set people up with people they will like, so there's not right. drama. And you just watch people's blind dates, and it's real sweet. And you get the the gamut of accents on that. Well, can I tell you what I learned from Naked Attraction? Yes. Is that yes. British people judge each other based on the accent, yes. and that has a lot yes. to do with class. Yes. So you can grow up right next to somebody and have a completely different accent than huh. them based solely on your class. Hmm. So you don't often hear like tradespeople coming to our house, you know, mm -hmm. like the plumber or the electrician. You don't often hear them sounding like Victoria right. Beckham, for right. example. So accents are 
it's a really nuanced thing here in the UK. And I am I'm very careful to speak too much on it because there's an element of pride mm. involved. And it is a very tricky thing. Mm. So like when people move down to London to work, sometimes they're expected to like assimilate mm -hmm. their accent. So they aren't looked down on. Mm. London itself has a bajillion different mm. accents based on if you're from the East. So like think your classic like Dick Van Dyke, which isn't terribly accurate to anything but like you, you mean you an american that, actor's british accent is not not authentic it's not even good like but <laughs> think that right that's what most americans are going to like hello governor hello governor uh, that's more like east london cockney and okay. cockney accents not only do they have their own accent in east london they have their own language yes they do I learned that in The Secret Garden. Is that in The Secret Garden? Yeah, two of the two of the characters are Cockney. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't remember yeah. that at all. So East London has its own accent. Your accent will change if you are black, if you're white. You can really hear the Caribbean accent come mm. through in like South London accent. Mm. There are accents that I need subtitles for. Apologies right. to anybody who's from the North because I cannot understand. Because that almost sounds Scottish to me usually yeah there's scottish sounding north okay. and then there's other <laughs> so like there's scouse which is liverpool liverpool i can understand manchester i cannot and these two towns are only an hour away from each that other wild so i really struggle to understand mancunian which is manchester accent and liverpudlian you're good with liverpudlian i'm okay, i'm i can mostly unless they're really just speaking yeah. so fast essex Oh, man, like the Geordie accent I can't understand and like a very heavy Cornish accent in Newcastle as well. So there's a lot of accents that I, I genuinely do need subtitles for. And I don't remember where Nadia is from, but I'm not even going to hazard okay. yeah. to say. Well, I mean, and this is a, quite a digression yeah. from an actually really like... <laughs> deeply important episode so i apologize nadia for like this is but this is what all the americans are thinking so i'm saying it right is that like i wonder yeah. where she's from tell me more about accents i would love there i i would watch this is probably really ridiculous but i would watch a documentary about british accents so if any documentarians I can guarantee that, somewhere that exists okay. well anyone finds it let yeah. us know i will watch it and may skip it but I, I really liked Nadia so much. And mm -hmm. I mm -hmm. loved talking about like all of the bullshit things that Americans have brought mm -hmm. into yoga. I was horrified at your yoga teacher who was standing in his white mansplaining. Yeah, it's, it's, it's so it's so wild because now that I've moved just outside of Chicago, it's funny the things that you can't get, like even just like 30 minutes out of the city. Mm -hmm. Like I cannot find a yoga studio that has classes at times that I can take them because mm -hmm. all of the yoga studios are like privately owned and wonderful and lovely. So like core power is like one of my only choices for classes. And, mm -hmm. and truthfully, I mm -hmm. spent some time at core power and I find that the teachers who get it are the teachers that I end up liking, right? The ones who not yeah. just, they don't just study at core power, right? Like they went to India or have gone to other places and have done the work mm -hmm. outside of the yoga room. Mm -hmm. So I really, I loved, I loved all of that. And I really want to check out her book. Yeah. One of the things that I really like about this conversation with Nadia is hearing someone else 
who feels Mm -hmm. the same way because it is a very, you know, being a yoga teacher is very tricky, I think, to get the balance of appreciation and appropriation and also to work in a trauma-informed way. Mm -hmm. And so to hear Nadia's take on how all of that can exist at the same time or how all of that has its own place and and how she brings it into her classes afterwards I was like I want to come to one of your classes because like you know this is such this is my vibe and it's it can be really difficult to find other yoga teachers who are as fired up about this or who care as much mostly Hmm. well it's it's a really white world and people Mm. really want to feel like they're gurus or I want to be careful here. People, there is a very spiritual experience that comes with practicing yoga. And it is naturally, for most people, going to be tied to some type of Indian spiritual practice Mm -hmm. because the roots of yoga are in India. And I think for a lot of people, that becomes very personal. Yeah. So suggesting that any of that could be problematic is sometimes interpreted as naturally attacking their spiritual practice. Silliness. Well, I, I, you know, I understand the logic of why that happens. And because I've, you know, we discussed my yoga teacher training in this episode, because a lot of people are trained like that, you know, I was the only person in the room who said anything about it. And a couple of the people in the room fought me on it. Including the teachers. When was that? Uh, 2021? 2020? Oh, I thought you were going to say like, oh, 2018 or something like pre-George Floyd. No, ma'am. No, 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 no. And this, yeah. Yeah, so it's, you know, this is super real. And that guy is head of a department on yoga at a university. So the messages that are coming out about this especially to yoga to white yoga teachers are either whitewashed mm-hmm. or are tailored towards like it's okay to appropriate this mm-hmm. because it's not appropriation it's appreciation right. and no one's taught to critically think on that and and you know we've talked before about how a lot of these conversations are very behind in the UK so yeah so it's it's a delicate thing to approach with people because spirituality is tied into it it doesn't feel quite as black and white as things like racism Mm-hmm. I mean, if a person, though, is doing their own anti-racism work, they would be able to, it is not necessarily black and white, but it's a simple thing to recognize like, oh, the spiritual practices that I have adopted came from somewhere that has nothing to do with my origin and lineage. And to separate that out is just ego maturity, but mm. Because people will criticize witchcraft, right? Mm-hmm. And say like, oh, it's you know, heathen and demon and all that sort of stuff. And I understand where they're coming from. And I'm able to also recognize mm-hmm. like that has nothing to do with me. That's uh, centuries of indoctrination by Christian supremacy mm-hmm. and not take it personally and know it, right? Yes. So I agree with you that if someone is doing the their work on anti-racism, that that would naturally be something that they consider. I think that is not That's not what's happening. Common. Right. Yeah. That's not what's that happening. Yeah. So that's not what's happening. It's not what's being encouraged and in fact in a lot of ways is being mm-hmm. discouraged or looked Silenced, over. Yeah. And so I think in some ways it's not even 
it is everyone's responsibility to be doing this. But when, you know, for example, someone is telling you cultural appropriation doesn't exist and that's yeah. your teacher. Right. There's an element of like, like gaslighting almost like. Yeah. Well, yeah. it's power. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yep. So. So Nadia rocks. Nadia and I are going to talk. Yeah. She's fucking great. And she's, you know, taking on these narratives and talking about these like very complex topics. And she's tackling them, I think, with a lot of grace Mm -hmm. and a lot of mm, fiery. I don't know. She's to me, she's a warrior pose, Mm. like strong Mm -hmm. yet balanced and fierce yet graceful yeah that's a warrior pose to me i love it that's beautiful yeah Mm. so let me introduce to you nadia galani she her is a yoga teacher and author of the yoga manifesto a part memoir part polemic on the wellness industry and state of play within modern yoga so please enjoy this episode and let us know what you think. Are you a therapist stepping into leadership for the first time? Or maybe you've been in a leadership position for a while but are bumping up against new struggles. It's a transformative journey and one that can be deeply rewarding but also filled with unique challenges. Many therapists find themselves in leadership positions because of their exceptional therapeutic skills, yet leading, supervising, or managing others requires a whole new set of competencies not covered in graduate school. Our authentic leadership group is here to help you become the authentic and wholehearted leader you aspire to be. And we believe this journey is best undertaken with the guidance of experienced mentors alongside fellow learners. Authentic Leaders will run February 2024 through September, meeting once monthly on Fridays for 90 minutes. Join me in this journey of self-discovery and leadership mastery, where you'll enhance your leadership skills and forge meaningful connections with fellow therapists who are committed to their own growth and the betterment of the therapy field. To join me and start registration, go to www.headheartbiztherapy.com slash authentic leaders dash group. That's headheartbiztherapy.com slash authentic leaders dash group. Nadia, welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. Hi, thank you for inviting me. Yeah, I'm so excited to talk to you. Could you start by introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Well, my name's Nadia uh, Gilani, and I'm a writer principally. Um, I also teach yoga, and I guess that's what I've been doing most recently. So I came across your work through Instagram, and you were talking a lot about colonization and yoga, and you also kind of give people little 90-second bites on on starting a writing practice. Is that right? I've been doing that now, yeah. But maybe you came across when I'm it might I don't know how far back you were you, you saw the stuff that I was doing, but I started off actually with 60-second videos when I was talking about stuff going on in the yoga world mm-hmm. that I was uncomfortable with. But yeah, most recently I've been doing uh, 90 second videos on writing because obviously I've now written the book that I was right. I wasn't actually writing then, but I had lots of ideas about and I suppose they started leaking out on on Instagram in little reels. And yeah, colonization, ideas around that and racism and history, um, imperialism, you know, all the bad isms, I suppose, kind (laughs) of on my mind at the time. Yeah. Yeah. And your book is called the yoga manifesto. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what you were experiencing 
in the yoga world that that felt problematic to you and and kind of what led you to writing about it? Yeah, I mean, I think it all happened really quickly. So I've been practicing yoga for a really long time. My mum took me to my first class when I was 16. I'm in my 40s now. And I came to teaching quite late in the day. So I suppose in the intro, maybe I should have sort of said a bit more actually, but I was a news journalist for a really long time. And I'm not going to go into the too much of the story because I don't want to give give anything away, but there's a, a big thing happened in my life, a big major life event. So I worked in newspapers and then I moved into sort of communications jobs, still in a newsy capacity, but with a bit of campaigning and social justice and issues like that, mm-hmm. you know, social justice. I've always been political. And so I moved into that kind of vein and then this big life event happened and I just didn't feel like life could go on the way that I was going and then I started, I'd done a teaching training, a yoga teaching training, just my own practice. Never wanted to be a yoga teacher. It's a big irony of my mm. life now. But I never wanted to be a yoga teacher. I just thought the world didn't need any more. I don't think I really understood what it meant because now I love it. And also, I, I suppose I'll, I'll bring myself back because I was running away into the future a bit then, missing some bits out. But I think that yeah, I understand more what it means now, what yoga teaching now means to me. And I don't think I did then. I think I had this idea of what a yoga teacher was and I didn't really want to do that. Anyway, I started volunteering for a charity that ran classes for refugees. Obviously, that combines with my whole accessibility, yeah. justice kind of angle of life. And then I found it quite terrifying, actually. But then through that, I just started teaching more. And very quickly, I started feeling uncomfortable. So in answer to your question, that was a bit of a long-winded run-up. But in answer to your question, I started noticing that I was often the only person of color in the room. Yeah. And it was quite a strange power imbalance because I had all the power in a way. Because yeah. I'm at the front of the room. And then I noticed that there was a lot of people, you know, who seemed to be coming across the board. So I'm not just talking about ethnic diversity. I'm sort of talking about all of the diversities, you know, sort of. Yeah. Obviously gender, you know, more women come. And age, able-bodied, mm-hmm. most people are. The ethnicity thing is obviously quite important, but then there's also, yeah, I suppose sexual orientation, like diversity across the board. I wasn't seeing it. And so that was one thing. And then I started just seeing the practice, the way that it was being taught and having to fit into the way it was taught didn't feel quite right to the way that I've been practicing it. And I should mention that I don't think yoga in, and I'm talking about London, the London Mm -hmm. scene, obviously. I I think this is a global thing as well, though, because I've been and seen scenes in other countries which are very similar and like America for example but also in other countries East East Asian countries even in India of all places like there's a lot of classes that are kind of in these tourist hotspots which are like mainly white people going to them who are on holiday or whatever if you go to tourist hotspots Mm -hmm. like Goa so that was bothering me and but the thing is it I don't think diversity was ever really a thing in yoga but I think when I was growing up and you know I was going through life and my 20s and stuff you know I was just getting on with life and too busy with that to notice but I think you know obviously I was older but then but, but it's really quite interesting when you're the teacher you see things from a different perspective yeah yeah so that that was a big bother of mine and then also the way that classes were being sold and presented started bothering me there seemed to be some like miss there seems to be sort of sort of like some things that were not quite going right. I was going to say misinformation, but I, I suppose that's not necessarily the right word, but just there just seemed to be like a disconnect with the practice that I was mm-hmm. familiar with, the thing that, that everybody was teaching. And then I felt pressure to fit into it. So I ended up, I mean, in short story, I've ended up feeling really sort of quite hugely anxious. I remember feeling really anxious, quite depressed. And um, 
I was complaining to a friend of mine probably a bit too much because he said to me, you should write these stories down. Mm. And so I started writing some stuff out, mainly just myself to kind of sort of almost not quite journal it out, but, you know, because I was a journalist for a long time, telling stories is like quite a natural thing for me to do. And it's kind of like the way I make sense of things. But it was an unusual one because I'd always written about other people. So here I was writing about myself, but I turned them into stories, like new stories. And then he said to me, I think you could probably turn this into a book. So that's how it came about. But then I started putting a lot of my own memoir in and my personal story, which I think is quite pertinent. And we'll come to that, to this podcast really in a way about being the wounded healer or or having our wounds, because there are a lot of wounds that I went through before I taught yoga. And I think part of the issue that I saw, another issue that I saw within the yoga world was how shiny it was and how Mm. it didn't seem to really be serving wounded people. And also people teaching didn't seem to be having I don't know I just didn't connect with anybody I just didn't feel like anybody had any sort of stuff that they'd worked through and I felt really quite lost yeah because you know, there's a class issue going on as well in the lack of diversity and also as somebody who's come, had a working class background I, I just didn't feel comfortable with that either mm-hmm. so yeah I talked a lot about my own journey with yoga my relationship with yoga but then also yoga's relationship with the world I suppose is where it ends so I'm curious to hear what some of the specific issues apart from you know the lack of diversity what you believe because I think there are lots of different ways to interpret yoga and there are lots of different ways that it's practiced and you know with the sort of central tenets of yoga the yamas and the niyamas which you know for those who don't know are the sort of central pillars of yoga everyone interprets those differently and some people don't really interpret them at all or bring those in at all and i'm curious to hear what you think about that and and where you've seen that or not seen that yeah i think that's a really good question because i think that's actually kind of at the heart of what would start to make things better Mm -hmm. and i talk about this in the book as well because i mean a lot of people talk about ahimsa for example you know the tenet of nonviolence. um that's one that that comes up a lot and and i started thinking about a lot more, I was thinking about it anyway, but I was thinking about it really when it was in my face when George Floyd was murdered in 2020. And suddenly, obviously, it shook the world. We were all at home and this video and a black man had been murdered. But it wasn't the first time a black man had been murdered. But I think the whole context, the video and everything really shook everybody. And everybody started hastily feeling like they had to do more mm-hmm. for diversity. And I found it quite annoying and up- and just a bit upsetting because it really sort of made clear to me that, wow, this has not been a priority for too long. Yeah. And then I started thinking about Ahimsa and how within the space that I'd been teaching yoga, it seemed to be really absent in a way because there's this ancient practice and I'm not saying it should be taught the way that it was taught million you know thousands of years ago a lot of people spend a lot of time in the yoga world and I commend them you know that's not the line I'm on in terms of like really looking and I'm not an academically minded person you know I'm a just a bog standard human being who's lived a life and been a journalist and written a book about my life and (laughs) hold on a bog standard human being who's been a journalist and written a book and become a yoga teacher that feels like feels like an undersell yeah (laughs) But that's how I identify because for me, that's my yeah. life. That's been my life sure. and those are my life choices. But in terms of like stuff we're going to talk about today, you know, I'll be coming to you. I'll be chatting to you today and I'm chatting to you from yeah. my own life experience. I'm not chatting to you about stuff that I know about yoga based on books I've read. True. Yeah. And the whole book is not meant to be a textbook. It's I didn't want to write a textbooky 
you know, I have written a book that people have told me has been informative mm. and useful, but it's a massive personal story. Yeah. So yeah, that's kind of what I mean, really. Like, not to just do a sort of devalue what I've done in, with my life, but um, I just see myself as, as as a fellow traveler. You know. Sure. Yeah. 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 And. But yeah, the Ahimsa thing, I think I just felt like, you know, so so I'm very concerned with modern life and the way I teach is very concerned with modern life and how do we integrate this practice and make it, ser- help it serve mm. or use it rather to serve people who are living modern life with the modern, the ills of modern life that they're dealing with. And that could be stress. It could be like the refugees I was teaching, you know, the life that they've had to go through to get here and the trials and tribulations of modern life. And I'm less, and that's what I mean about the academic side of things. And I know people who are academic who I think are brilliant personally, but it just doesn't interest me. I just don't think I've got the mind for it either. And so the Ahimsa thing for me personally was kind of like, I just thought, how is it possible to take a practice that isn't perhaps necessarily your own? I don't think it really belongs to any of us really in the sense that none of us owns it. I'm not going to say, you know, I'm not even Indian. I am South Asian, not Pakistani um, heritage, but I don't think it belongs any more to me because of ancestral lineage Mm -hmm. than to you because it's an ancient practice. And like any, I know it's a spiritual practice rather than a religious one, or that's, and I see it as a secular practice also, which has offended some people. But I think that like any faith, like any spiritual path, the tools are there, the guidance is there, and then it's up for grabs. You know, I think anybody should be able to have access. But I think also this is where it comes, this is where things went a bit wrong, I think, with yoga. And not everybody's doing it this way because I've spent spent the year, kind of most of this year, traveling the country, meeting people who are doing wonderful things in communities mm. around, yeah, around the country and abroad as well in some places I've been. And it's wonderful. But I think the kind of dominant narrative is is a shiny, glossy, very capitalist, quite elitist, exclusive type of yoga and you know how can that be non-violent you know mm. how, how can that be? going back to the ahimsa tenet and some of the other tenets as well like i always flip them around but you know like there's a tenet of non-greed mm-hmm. and i think it's all too easy to think about not being greedy but i think you know these philosophies are there for us to sort of contemplate and question and think about and if you do sit there and contemplate and question and think about I mean, non-greed, it's, I don't think it's not in, I don't think it's enough. And non-stealing is another one. I don't think it's enough not to take other people's stuff or what doesn't belong to you and not to take more than your fair share. That's mm-hmm. important. But then, I mean, why don't we flip it around and think about generosity? Yeah. And I don't have a business, but, you know, generosity of time, other people's time, generosity of, in terms of a business, if I had a business, you know, paying people fairly, mm-hmm. things like that, you know, in terms of Ahimsa, you know, if we're going to, take part in a culture or benefit from or enjoy a culture or a practice, an ancient practice. And I think we just need to do it with respect and integrity. And I think that's what I saw was missing Yeah, because lots of things are getting thrown in, you know, and the classes are getting quite sort of mixed up with alcohol and puppies and goats, um, <laughs> goats yeah, and music and that turns it into a rave. I'm not saying music is bad, but you know, you know, when it's sort of like feels like it's gone a bit too far, but I think it's like not to antagonize or contradict myself too much, but I almost feel like you can do some of these things, but just maybe question check in and see is it with integrity and respect and also think about the practice because like I was talking to somebody the other day I mean it's things generally go over my head now because I've written the book and I've got most things off my chest but somebody was telling me about a puppy class a puppy yoga class that's going on in London somewhere and I don't know where it is I wasn't really following through but for me it always strikes me as how oh you know that just sounds really faffy it sounds really like a lot of distraction mm. which sort of defeats the whole purpose of what the practice is for so I think that's part of it as well. You know, the gimmicky stuff, that's an issue. Yeah, I think a lot about this 
So I did my yoga teacher training. I had been practicing yoga for years before I started my therapy training. And my therapy training is very much left the body out. And, you know, now people are a little bit more on board with the idea that, you know, our body holds a lot of our trauma and this and how you can't separate it from your mental health. But in the middle of my therapy training is when I did my yoga teacher training. And I started to go, holy shit, there's so, this is the same thing as therapy training. It's all about understanding yourself, creating a deeper connection to yourself so that you can then go out in the world and have a deeper connection with the world and, and interact with the world better. And I had never, in all of the yoga classes I had been to prior to my therapy training and prior to my yoga teacher training, that had never been communicated to me. So I had been to so many yoga classes and loved doing it without understanding, wait, this is actually meant to be me getting a better understanding of of myself and of what nonviolence means to me and, and what self-study means. And, you know, and it wasn't necessarily even my yoga teacher training that taught me that. And, you know, life, it's life that teaches us that, right? Yeah. And I did my yoga teacher training in the UK with mostly white people all of our teachers were white. And we had a guy who his job was kind of the yoga philosophy, the history. And this is a 60-something-year-old white guy who is also the professor of yoga studies at a big university in the UK, who was he was talking about something. And I said, well, that sounds really, that sounds like cultural appropriation to me. And and he said, cultural appropriation doesn't exist. And I said, wow. my dude, you're a white guy who has made his living studying another country as if it's like a something exotic, you know, that it's not people, like you're studying animals. Like, And he was so insistent that cultural appropriation does not exist, like could not even entertain the thought. And I was like, that's not nonviolence. Like, mm. and that's not you're stealing someone else's culture and taking it as your expertise. And so I don't think that a lot of those those tenants are taught, and especially then when we take that out into the, the world of teaching, if the teachers didn't learn that, then they're not transmitting it. Yeah, exactly. No. Yeah. I think, yeah, I mean, I didn't learn about that either. Mm-mm. I was on a mostly white course as well. I did. I trained in the UK. I did a training in India as well. Um, that wasn't perfect either, to be honest, but I was also the only person of color on that one, funnily enough. Isn't that interesting? I mean, having, <laughs> I, I 100% believe it. <laughs> mm. Yeah. 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 I mean, the teachers were Indian. So, so okay. that was that, you know, so, so, so that was useful. But, but yeah, the other students were, were not. I think the cultural preparation thing is interesting, isn't it? Because I think a lot of people, I've never actually come across anyone as blatantly as that. I'm, you know, I suppose. I'm curious to know what his explanation was, but I'll just say that what was his explanation actually? There, there wasn't I, one. And there wasn't one. He took it even further okay. to say that if anybody was being harmed, this I can't. I, oh, he took it further to say that if anyone was being harmed, it was the white people that the Indians went to the United States and sold yoga to because they were taking their money. Wow. I can't I, like you can't make this up. He was like, you know, the Indian people came to the United States in the 60s and tried to sell this as like a whole thing. And, you know, a lot of people gave a lot of money to it. And and I I just like sat there dumbfounded. Yeah. Because 
Like, where do you even start? <laughs> where do you even start? It's interesting because I do actually mention this. I touch on this briefly in my book where mm. the big sort of soapbox chapter comes mm-hmm. comes kind of like towards the end. It's a book of three parts, really. You know, the first part is my personal story. The middle part is kind of like the yoga teaching mm-hmm. stuff where I had the discoveries. And then towards the end, I sort of look at solutions. And just before the solutions, I do a big sort of like close magnify glass on this mm. situation. And one of the things I sort of touch on is just to acknowledge what he's saying in a sense that the yoga teachers, the Indian teachers who popularized yoga in the West, you know, they, they did want it to spread, you know, mm-hmm. I suppose it's like missionaries who want to spread the faith that they're following and that they believe is going to help people. And they did make money off it. And, you know, that's the way that it was and that's all good. But I think like before we came on, we were talking about compassion before we came on to record. And I think the big thing missing here in his whole outlook seems to be compassion, empathy, and also doing it with grace. Because I feel like Mm. mm, it's interesting because he didn't even mention the word, he didn't even mention appreciation, which is the thing that I've come Mm -hmm. across most where people are saying they've denied, they deny cultural appropriation is happening. And they say it's appreciation and that there's a fine line between appropriation Mm -hmm. and appreciation. I don't fully agree with that. Well, I don't partially even agree with that. I don't see the line. I just think it gets rubbed out Mm -hmm. all the time. And there's no line to me. Maybe it's because I'm more sensitive to these things because I'm not white, but then there's you and there are loads of white people I know who I'm friends with and who I work with who are very aware of, you know, the difference between appreciation and appropriation. And I think, again, if you're not sure, a really good way of, because I do also meet a lot of anxious people who want to do, because these are the times we live Mm -hmm. in, who want to do things in a kind way, particularly since the book's come out and people kind of, you know, think I've got all the answers mm-hmm. and I haven't, but I have, I have got my own experience and everything I do is from my own heart because I wrote the book from my heart. And I sort of say to them, you know, checking in with yourself, coming back to your own practice. This is often like teachers or new teachers, mm-hmm. particularly who are asking me these questions about how they can do things because they want to respect it, but they're worried they're mm-hmm. going to get it wrong. And I almost encourage it, like make mistakes, mm-hmm. make more mistakes learn, grow, Mm -hmm. move forward. I think it's become, I mean, because the climate we live in and, you know, I mean, it's, I think it's tricky. It's become, we're living in a world that doesn't really want us to change our mind or make mistakes so much. We get cancelled. There's risk of being cancelled. There's risk of never living it down, um, which I think is a real massive shame. I mean, it's more than a shame, isn't it? I just don't think it's useful for progress. But I suppose I've drifted off a bit here, but I think that the appropriation thing is undeniable and I think he went really wrong when he went down that line about about the money and stuff because like it did happen but I suppose it's the way you tell the story like yeah. you know I mean they did want to spread the practice but then it's a case of like look at what we've taken yeah. it off yeah. and done with it that's the kind of problem yeah and I'm curious so coming back to appropriation versus appreciation and and I don't think you went on much of a tangent when we talked about cancel culture and because it is I mean I think a lot of people are worried to get things wrong. And I'm interested to hear where you feel like what would be appreciation versus what you interpret as appropriation specifically in the yoga practice. And I'm not maybe I'm not asking you to say like, what are the rules? But Mm. what's your interpretation of that? I think it's difficult to be too specific, which I know is a bit of a pain. But I think that 
let's look at the extreme end of things. So the extreme end of things is kind of what we were saying about mm-hmm. the puppies and the, you know, the wine and the gin and stuff and chucking music on and turning yoga into a rave mm-hmm. or sort of making it trendy and fashionable. I think that's kind of appropriating it, chucking in like words that don't have anything to do with yoga, like namaste, which people still want to talk to me about. And I kind of first, I made this video on Instagram about the word namaste and the misuse of it. And it sort of got shared thousands of times. And this is like way before I wrote the book, the book came out in 2020. And there was a real mix of opinion. There were loads of people, mainly South Asian, getting in touch with me and saying, wow, thank God somebody said something about this. Mm. And then there were loads of other people a lot of women in the States, actually, yoga teachers who were kind of ex- shocked and rather than asking me more about it, kind of were explaining why they said it and what it meant to them and that it was a nod to India, somebody said. And then I sort of go on in the book a bit more about these teachers were sort of nodding in the wrong direction because namaste, just for anybody listening, is like, you know, it's a greeting. It's a Hindu greeting and it has got a lovely meaning. But like so many other South Asian greetings have beautiful mm-hmm. meanings as well, like assalamu alaikum, the Muslim one means peace be upon you. Namaste can be translated various ways. You know, I bow to the light in you is a very common one. It's very beautiful and it is a Sanskrit word, but it's not got anything to i mean it's i don't think to my knowledge and like bear in mind i'm not an academic but i have checked with people that it's not in any of the scriptures so if you want to do things authentically Mm -hmm. i'm always a bit delicate around that word because like i said earlier you know are any of us doing anything authentically i don't think authenticity is necessarily the answer Mm -hmm. i think it's about looking at the thing doing it with respect doing it with integrity and appreciation, I think, will follow. I think appropriation is, I'll tell you something, some, some, you know, I'll tell you, this is probably, I hope I've, maybe I've wandered off a bit too much, but I'll tell you. No, nope, I'm still, you're still I'm there. still with I you. Say, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was always worried because I, uh, this is when I was writing the book, I think it's like, it, this happened a lot when I was writing because it's just the way I think. And then I just keep thinking of all these threads. But somebody who said it much better than me outside of the yoga context, but I think we can apply it and it might help make sense of this is the Jamaican novelist Marlon James once said that the issue with cultural appropriation is not even the appropriation necessarily itself it's taking a thing out of context and then repackaging it repurposing it Mm. and pretending that you came up with it yourself Mm -hmm. and I mean I'm saying that in my words but but that's the kind of gist of what he was saying and I thought wow he's really nailed it I think that's kind of what it is and that's kind of what's happening over here at least mostly what I've seen in London but then I've seen it in other countries Mm -hmm. as well and also I suppose it's like in other contexts you know it's like wearing bindis music festivals I spoke I mean bindis don't have any connection to my life because I didn't have a Hindu upbringing and Mm -hmm. I'm not practicing in in that way at all you know bindis have a religious significance in the middle of the forehead but you know it's a fashion accessory for people who don't have any connection with that faith yeah that's appropriation isn't it So, I mean, I think practicing yoga is not appropriation. I think taking the practice and making it part of your life is what it's for. Mm -hmm. I think the appropriation almost ironically, or perhaps not ironically, is going on with this man, this man on the course you talk about, because the fact that he's living his whole life and making a living off this thing and then denying kind of all the stuff Mm -hmm. around it. That's appropriate. I mean, he's yeah. doing it, isn't he? He's appropriation in action. And that's that, which is what I w- tried to point out to him because it's, you know, and, and that was not, you know, it was met with a lot of resistance. But you said something about authenticity, about practicing authentically in terms of like the roots of yoga. And I thought about how if you're practicing 
authentically, whether it's as a student or as a teacher, if you're practicing authentically to yourself, what am I bringing to this practice? What can I facilitate in this practice? It almost mitigates the risk of sort of, in air quotes, getting things wrong, Mm. you know, because you're not putting on a show. And that's, I think, where so much appropriation happens is when we're trying to put on, you know, with the Sanskrit and the namaste and the chanting, if if we're putting on a show and we're not authentic to ourselves, therefore not authentic to the practice. Does that make sense? Completely. You've really hit the nail on the head. I mean, I think for me personally, as well in my journey in 2020, I had another series of loads of things kind of Mm. went a bit wrong. You know, I had a big breakup. I had some personal stuff going on. I've written about all this stuff in the book and loads of people had personal problems, didn't they, in 2020 and beyond. And everything started going wrong and it was really quite a difficult time. And I was kind of on the floor and I had nowhere else to go. Mm. I couldn't practice. I didn't want to do it anymore. Was it going to work this time? It was a real bad time. But you know, three years on now, I sort of feel like it was, I couldn't have seen this at the time, but it really has changed my approach Mm -hmm. to the practice and the way that I, you know, then go on and teach in a way that is so more true Mm -hmm. to my experience of the practice. And I do everything from the heart, you know, like it's checking in with yourself and following your heart. And this is what I say to people when I meet them, because Mm -hmm. I think it's really, you know, if people want to read books and they want to get to do things authentically, according to the way that it was done thousands of years ago, that's up to them. I don't do it that way for me. And I I think as well on the authenticity point, you know, when you were talking, I was thinking about how on the courses, I don't know about other courses, but in terms of my course, you know, there's so much to learn that there isn't really that messaging going on on the trainings. You know, people are so busy trying to, the tutors are trying to cram in the anatomy and the philosophy and they just want to get the data Mm -hmm. and the info Mm -hmm. across. And we are sitting there because it's intense, isn't it? Like whenever you do a teach training, however long it might be, whether it's the year or whatever. I mean, the year ones, I think, are a good way to go, not the crash courses. But I mean, even when it's spread out, you've got so much going on because it's such a personal practice. You've got your life going on in the middle and... I mean, both trainings I did, you know, people had some like mega transformative Mm -hmm. things happen, you know, marriages ended, people made big life decisions. And that's the nature of the beast. That's Mm -hmm. the nature of life, at least. And then that's the nature of the practice. So I think, yeah, I think what I say to people is, and this is as a human Mm -hmm. being, not as a, as an expert, but when they're panicking about doing things authentically is I just say, come back to your own practice. Remember why you started. Mm. And this is actually something that I said to myself when I was writing my book. So it's a question that I often ask myself mm-hmm. about all things, which is when you hit a wall, which is what I think happens yeah. for a lot of people, especially in this climate we talked about earlier with how everything's quite fraught and we can't make it, we're scared of making mistakes, saying the wrong thing is nobody's going to, I think, be offended by an inquiring mind so I think asking questions in a sensitive inquiring way I think is a good way to go rather than taking the approach of oh we can't say anything anymore I just think that's a bit defeatist because I ask questions all the time and I'm generally met with a positive response Mm -hmm. you know so yeah I I think asking around about things that you want to know about but then when I get stuck and I hit a wall I, with anything, and um, particularly with practice, because it was going on at that time in 2020, I just could not face anything. I had to go dig. I had to go inside. There was nowhere mm-hmm. else to go, and it didn't happen overnight. It's taken probably the last few years to get here, and I think I'm still doing it. But now I'm just building it and making it stronger. The muscle has got mm-hmm. quite strong, and I 
can hear and check in with my heart. I never used to know what it meant when people said, listen to your heart. I just had no idea. Gut feelings, what on earth are they? I've got brilliant instincts, but I wasn't listening to them. And now if it doesn't feel right, it probably isn't. That's what I say to people. Yeah. And I say that to people also when I'm teaching, like if I come and do an assist on you with you, if I come and do an adjustment and it doesn't feel right, it definitely isn't to so tell me. I encourage autonomy, which is again something mm-hmm. that I think is lacking in the yoga world. I encourage people put their arm straight in the air so that I can see them and I won't miss them. I encourage them to say, no, don't mm-hmm. assist me because I might be a stranger. They might have met me for the first time. I'm sensitive to that. I had so many adjustments that I put up with, inappropriate ones, but also just st- ones that were mm-hmm. too strong for me. I didn't feel like I could say no. I think these are problems as well in the modern modern world as well because it's a lot of people just come and they just take what we're we're putting on and I don't think that's right. I think this is a dialogue. Yeah, I um so something that I do at the beginning of all of my classes is to say you know your body better than I do. And if I offer you a, a pose, it's just that, it's an offering and you can say no to it. That's beautiful. The second yoga teacher training I did was trauma sensitive yoga and it's all about invitational language and I learned how problematic a lot of our teaching language can be. And it's completely changed the way that I teach, where now I'm like, you don't want to do that, don't do that. Mm. And I'm really lucky that the studio where I teach in Brighton, a lot of the teachers share that vibe, where people are like, this is all just different ways of self-exploration. Take what works for you and leave what doesn't. So are you making, you're making, because I often say, these are just suggestions. Yeah, yeah. If there's something better Mm -hmm. that you know, or you want to try please take the, is that kind of what you're It's Yeah, it's exactly that. Like if Mm. if I say downward dog and you go, nope, child's pose, or if you want to bring another leg in the air or, you know, your body knows what it needs. And and I think it's so important, just as you said, I had this intuition that I wasn't listening to. It's helping people grow that ability to listen to themselves. And I think personally, I think that is more healing than anything else is helping people learn to trust themselves over you as the teacher. Completely, 100%, Mm. 1,000%, totally. I think that the biggest gift I think I've realized is that, is to keep cultivating that relation. And because I don't think it was cultivated in the teachers I had Mm -mm. at all. And I I was lucky I had some good teachers and I had some really terrible experiences as well, which I've written about in the book because I had this Mm -hmm. chapter on the problem with gurus. And I naively or whatever you know, I mean, I suppose I'm not being very kind to myself there, but I, I sort of walked into situations that, you know, were bad Mm. because I think a lot of people do come to the practice because they want to change something, don't we? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it might be physical to start with. It might be Mm -hmm. stay physical or it might be emotional, spiritual. My mum took me because I was in a really Mm. bad way. I had a terrible relationship with my body. I was Mm. starving. I didn't want to eat properly. Then I started throwing up. It was just Mm -hmm. messy times, right? And it didn't cure me overnight, but it opened it opened something. Mm. And I think that's the thing. And then obviously, you know, we need to do this practice and then we get a relationship with it. It's, for me, it all boils down mm-hmm. to relationship and relationship with self, relationship with yeah. body, relationship with world. And I think that we can talk about the practice being a mind, body, spirit practice, sure. But I don't know whether it's really going on in the classes always because 
I really work hard to give the agency back because I often meet students. They just want to give it all to me yeah. and they want me to tell them what to do. And I encourage, and I, and it's funny, actually, I was teaching class a few days ago and there were some new people in the class and I'm really attentive. And this is, I, mean, I made a joke and said, you know, very little gets past me, but if I haven't seen you and something's, you're confused and something's not feeling right, you can't work it out. Come and get me, like, just give me a shout, you know, like I'll come over, we'll work it out together. But I sometimes, you know, in that class, particularly, there were some new people. I did some sun salutations with them in the beginning. And then I, I walk around a lot, you know, because then I can see everybody. And we'd done a few. And I said, I like a bit of self-practice in my lead classes as well. I encourage it. And I know it freaks people out sometimes, but they're safe. I want them to know that they're safe. So I keep talking to them and I'm here if they need me. So I say what might come next. And I say to them also, you know, I want you to just work it through because if you're listening to me the whole time, how can you do that and be in the body mm-hmm, and listen mm-hmm. to your breath? If you're or you're just working out where the hand and the foot goes and all of that, yeah. it's just too much. And so I was going to just say, you know, like if you get it wrong, but I mean, of course there's no wrong, but I just mean like, you know, obviously we're following a sequence and if you forget, that's part of remembering yeah. it, I think. Like, you know, and I say to them, you know, I'll see you and, I, and I'm here. But then I explain to them why I've done it because then I want them to know that, you know, it's by design. I haven't just wandered off the front of the mat in a kind of careless way. Yeah. I want them to stop relying on me, you know? Mm, and then I go, mm-hmm. it's really strange because I'm not a parent, but I think in a way it's like, because I'm not a parent and, and obviously this teaching isn't there, but I mean, I see myself as somebody there to guide and show the way, but I want you to show me the way as well. Mm. But I think a lot of people come in and they don't know that that's yeah. an option. And so I'm curious what you think about the term healer as applied to what you're doing. That's really interesting, you know, because I've, I don't really know. I think that's such yeah. a big topic. I don't know whether it sort of applies. I don't yeah. identify as a healer because I don't know if I'm qualified for that because I have had such a messy life with all my trials and tribulations that I've been through and I've my body's been through a lot you know because I've put it through a lot of terrible things and I harmed my body but I think healing is something that perhaps we can facilitate for other people so I've had lots of unexpected healing experiences by myself in the most Mm -hmm. unusual ways and I've only just sort of been aware of them sort of in recent years I mean I, I, I ride my bike everywhere and in London where I live and when I first started cycling again, because I had a big accident 10 years before mm. I started cycling again. And I started cycling again, maybe I think last year. And it was a really healing experience mm-hmm. for me because it was like independence, mm-hmm. learning how to do it again on my on my own. And also because I found public transport really difficult more than I did, you know, before the pandemic, I suppose. Mm. I just, I saw it as a real healing thing. And I suppose there wasn't anybody else there showing me the way, but I think, yeah, I don't know. I don't identify as a healer, but I think in a way I know firsthand from classes that I've taught for all the years I've been teaching that this practice can change lives. And it's a huge privilege and a huge honor when people trust me to rest with me. And I see it more as a healing experience or a healing exchange, but it needs to be on their terms. Yeah. So I'm never going to be like, you're, you're coming here and I'm going to heal. And also at the end of classes, I often, I I always ask people to um, just observe. I love this. My favorite thing to do at the end of classes is just, you know, we check in with ourselves before we part ways. And I always ask them to just notice if anything's shifted, anything's changed. And it's often quite subtle, isn't it? But we might find that thing. If we find something, make a note of it. 
And then I always like to tell people that, you know, to just know that that, that it was you that did that. Ooh, I love that. I'm yeah. going to steal that from my classes. <laughs> <laughs> but of course, of course, please. But I, do you know what I mean, though? Because it's like I spent so many years, I say mm. this to someone who didn't do that myself, mm-hmm. didn't do the owning of the thing that had happened because you just think, oh my gosh, this teacher, you know, that mm. they've done it. And it's kind of like putting all the power away, giving mm-hmm. the agency away. And it's kind of like, yeah, I am here. Mm-hmm. We shared this space in the community at this morning, at this lunchtime, at this evening, whatever the class, whenever the class is. And I'm showing the way, you know, maybe I'm teaching them a breathing technique that they haven't done before or whatever. But I love it when people, because you don't always get feedback because people need to have their experience. But sometimes when people like, you know, it was a few months ago, I did a workshop and somebody, a woman came up to me and said to me, gosh, in the meditation, she said that we did at the end, she said, she just experienced this. I I can't remember how she described it. She said lots of things, but she was kind of sort of saying it was kind of like there was nothing like there was just nothing and it didn't last long. And I said, yeah, that's why we practice. We keep practicing. But, and she said, I've never had that before. And I said, wow. And and she said, it happened in your class. And I just thought it was such a wonderful that she shared this with me because I thought, wow, to be present. Yeah. When someone has something that they feel moved to share is, is wonderful. But I suppose, yeah, I suppose that's a really long winded answer again, but I, that's what I think about the word healer. I mean, I I suppose don't want the responsibility because it, you know, I don't know whether I, it's going to work for you. Sure. But I'll, I'll hold your hand and sit next to you and, you know, walk through it with you. That's kind of what, how I see my position. Yeah. So what about the term wounded healer? Do you know, I really kind of loved it when you contacted me because I've never really resonated with the word healer in isolation mm-hmm. on its own because of all the reasons, I suppose. It's so complicated for me. I can't give you a straight answer. You know, like yeah. I've just gone all over the places. But I really liked, what I liked about it was I felt like, oh my God, you know, I think that resonates with me. Yeah more than the other one because you know I I see myself as a very emotional writer and I teach from that place I generally don't really know what I'm going to say in class because what I say will depend on who I see that's what I mean about it being a dialogue you know like it is based on who I'm not just going in there with a script I've got everything Mm -hmm. in my back pocket and I pull out the Mm -hmm. things that are feeling resonant you know right and resonant at the time because also I feel like I've got a lot of wounds and I think I've learned through therapy as well because I think I spent a long time misguidedly, I suppose, thinking there's something wrong with me and that I needed to cure or rid the wounds. But actually, as we know, and I know this from personal experience, I th- I believe that the pains in the body, the aches and pains in the body can be any number of things, can't they? Yeah. Emotional stuff. And I think that rather than purging and getting rid of whatever it is, to just tend to the wounds mm. and to hold them tenderly. And obviously these are not overnight things we learn. And and rather than I masked a lot of my wounds, I think, mm-hmm. which I didn't even recognize as wounds. That was the first big problem. And also like with drinking and with the food and with other things, I was refusing to feel the wounds. And then through therapy, uncovering the wounds, which has been devastatingly painful. Oh yeah. As you know, <laughs> And then learning to tend to them, yeah, and hold them, maybe like as tenderly as we might hold a newborn mm. baby and like look after the wounds. And like cause the other thing we might do as well, which I certainly did and have done, is protection, complete protection, looking mm-hmm. the heart away. I can't be hurt again, which I think is another issue, isn't it? Because mm-hmm. then we're missing out on life and connection and all of that. So I think, yeah, wounded healer. I think really speaks to the bog standard human being part of me because, Mm. you know, like, because that's, that's who I am. I'm, 
I'm wounded and battered and bruised. I'm surviving and I have survived. And I want to tell people as well about the wounds because, well, I want them to know because then they all tell me about their wounds and it's okay. But I think that's so normalizing. So something I like to do with my yoga students is if I'm demonstrating something that's more complicated, I like to tell them, this took me years. Yes. Yeah. Same, same. We because, yeah, yeah. you know, I've had teachers who just go right up into a headstand like it's nothing. And like, you know, you're like, whoa. Yeah. But you're normalizing the human experience, right? I tell people I go into backbends and half the time I start crying. And I've been doing yoga for years, right? And that, you know, hits on a lot of the way that I hold my trauma and my pain and my da da da. So if you're experiencing anger when you go into this, if you're experiencing, you know, like that is okay. And this is an okay place for that to be. So what you just said is you're just normalizing the human experience so that other people know that it's safe to also be normal humans as well. Yeah. And I think also letting them know that this is to be expected. It's like also, I think as well, not to dwell on it too much, but just to touch back on like some of the problems, I think, you know, in terms of yoga, like, you know, because it's multi-layered. It's like we can talk about cultural appropriation to the end, but it's not just that. I mean, on a human level, letting people know that, you know, if if we're doing something that's really heart opening, I'm not going to tell them to crack their hearts <laughs> open. Hell Maybe no. they're not ready. I mean, yeah. it's irresponsible. Mm-hmm. It might be too much. I mean, like, again, going back to that 2020 time when I was on the floor and like life felt like it had been burnt down to the ground. And I'm not exaggerating. I mean, you know, I'm speaking in very sort of like catastrophic terms, but it was mm-hmm. really, really bad. And I couldn't, there was no way I was going to do yeah. any backbending. No. Like, no way. There was a lock and key that had gone on and mm-hmm. it had to be like that for a while. And I'm grateful that, you know, I was able to, you know, I'm not still there. Like I was able to sort of like start to get to a place where I was thinking, okay, gently, gently, Mm -hmm. but it takes as long as it takes. And I think that, you know, like I do teach the heart opening and postures and things like that, but I, I'm not, yeah, I I do it with care and I encourage them to do it with care. And also the same as you, I love that you say that about this took me years because I was teaching last night and I, you know, with half Lotus, I think people look at it you know, or full lotus or whatever. I mean, full lotus is just nuts, isn't it? When you look at it and you think, oh my God, I'm never going to be able to do that. I don't want people to think that. I want them to know that this came with practice. Yeah. I mean, I think people who are hypermobile who are teaching yoga mm-hmm. should tell people that they're hypermobile. I think people who've been dancing for years yeah. should tell people that they've got these abilities because, and I don't, I don't know whether they always do, whereas I didn't have a body that was really made for yoga. And actually my body changes. There's lots of things that have stayed and generally stay the same. But there's because of the weight nature of Mm -hmm. how I live my life, you know, walking, cycling, strength training, my muscles Mm -hmm. have changed. So I can't do certain things I could before. But I do, I say to people, you know, this is why. And also let's try and just take it back a notch and enjoy being present in the practice, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But I think yeah. that doesn't come easily either because I don't know about you, but when I first started practicing yoga, I was chasing the shapes all the time. Oh, 100%. And now I'm just like, well, today I can't do that. And that's all right. Uh, you know, and but that's taken learning for me. And, and I demonstrate that for my students. I'm not going to be able to demonstrate this for you today because I went running yesterday and that muscle's really tight or, you know, whatever. My arm hurts and I'm taking care of myself. And that's just as important to demonstrate. Mm. So I want to make sure that we take the space to tell people where they can find you how they can find your book, how they can find you. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So on Instagram, that's the only social media I use. I'm at The Yoga Dissident. And I suppose all of my information about me is on my website, which is my full name.co.uk. So nadiagilani.co.uk. And yeah, information about my book is on there and what I'm up to. Thank you. And we'll have all the links to that in the show notes so people can access it. 
And I'll just say thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks so much. It was, yeah, it was great. And we went to places that I didn't expect. So it's all good. Oh, I love that. Well, thank you so much, Nadia. Thanks to our guest for an amazing conversation today. To find out more about today's guest, you can visit www.headheartbiztherapy.com slash podcast. You can find Sarah at, at Head Heart Biz Therapy on Facebook and Instagram. And you can find Anne at at Spare Room Wellness or spareroomwellness.com. Thanks as always to Andrea Clunder and the Creative Imposter Studios for editing, to Liam O'Donnell for the album art, and to Ben Mueller for our theme music. Until next time, bye-bye.